Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Yud, page 10. But because we're beginning a new parak and the Mishnah that, you know, basically heralds this this daf uh, is on the previous daf, I'm going to start there. Halacha Aleph, which is again on daf Tet, Amad Bet. Atruma mehayu osinba. The question is, of course, you know, after we've collected, after the Beit HaMikdash would have collected the Machatzita Shekel, and they store the, the Machatzita Shekel, as we talked about already, right? And then the question is, well, now, after they've done all this collection, what would they do with it? Which, honestly, you're doing, I feel like this Mishnah could have done, could have come earlier in the discussion. Um, so what they would do is that they would purchase the animals that they would need to have the korbanot the daily offerings, the ola was offered every morning and every late afternoon, and then of the musafin, the the holiday and rosh chodesh festival um, offerings that were, you know, the the same offering that nowadays is the tefillah of musaf. There was an additional korban, there was an additional animal offering, um, and also on Shabbat, of course, and then they had wine for nisuchayayin for libation of wine. And they would have barley. They would buy the barley for the Omer offering and wheat for the Shteelechem, for the two loaves offer, um, that they would have on Shavuot and Lechem Apanim, which is always on the Mizbeach. And all of these, Karbanot Zibur, all of this is paid for um, from, or that is what all of the funds of the Malchatzit Shekel would go to. And then the Mishnah continues, Shomer Sfichin B'Shvi'it Nodlin Scharan Mitrumat Elishka. So they're the guards of the Svichin, right? Svichin is a grain that would have grown, like, you know, of its own accord. It's not intentionally planted during a Shemitah year, during the sabbatical year, but it grows anyway. And then you can, um, they want, they guard it to make sure that people don't come and take it because it's still that which was grown during Shemitah and it should be available to be used for these Karbanot. So what did they do? The, these guards also got their um, salaries from the, from that, you know, from the Trumas Lishka, from the money that had already been collected. Rabbi Yossi Omer, So Rabbi Yossi says, well, you know, you could volunteer, right? You don't have to be paid to do to, to guard this green, which I find to be kind of an amusing statement from Rabbi Yossi, first of all, because, you know, on the one hand, I feel like, well, if they're doing this work, then shouldn't they be paid for it? But on the other hand, can't anybody be, be you know, be a volunteer and contribute their services, so to speak, instead of their money to the Beit HaMikdash, maybe the answer is that they cannot, and that's why Rabbi Yossi's statement here is significant. And then, of course, Amrulo, the sages, said to him, Afata Omer she'ein ba'in Ella, sorry, I have to turn the page, Ella Mishal Tzibor, right? He says, they, they said to him, well, you know, we're talking about the Omer, and we're talking about Shteelechem, all of that is supposed to be coming from communal funds. It's not from one individual. And so this is the argument against his position, Right about volunteering, namely that then it sounds like it's just coming from this one guy who donates his services, and then is that communal communal offering, um, you know, too much weighted to the one person as opposed to coming from the community. So that's you know that's the counter argument. Um, okay, Yordana, any questions or comments before I go on? No, I think you can uh, move on there. Okay, so I just want to mention just very briefly that what happens is that after this Mishnah, now we're on our daf of the day, right? Daf Yud, page 10, right? Then the Mishnah gets into a whole discussion or it really it meant, 
let me say this better. The Gemara comments on the Mishnah's dispute about this. Mara Azman Koanim this is what is the time of the wood for the Kohanim and for the nations that would be counted, namely in the Mishnah, is the idea if anybody could donate at any time. Meaning, after all that discussion at the very end, right, of that Mishnah, that's where the Gemara takes it, which I, uh, you know, find interesting that it's not, take, it's not commenting on the earlier part, at least not at this time. So the question is then, you know, to what extent do you have personal contributions and to what extent do you have um, communal contributions, right? So, and then when it says the time of the wood, zman of the priests. So now we're talking about, and the Gemara is going to discuss a little bit further, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning that um, people have already made their way back to Eretz Israel, and their families have volunteered to donate their specific wood offerings to the Beit HaMikdash. And the idea was that that would um, ease the financial, um, the fa- financial burden of the Beit HaMikdash. So then we actually have a mission in Masachatanit that's going to list their names, like who are these families that made these donations of the wood. And then at some point they didn't have to do that anymore. And still, right, those were the days where the families that donated the wood, um, they they celebrated on those days, right? And then they sometimes they would continue to donate the wood. And that's why, and then the Mishnah there, meaning in Tanit, as far as I understand it, would list list these numbers when these families would, would be the ones to donate the wood. So the bright that goes on, they did not find wood in the in the temple chamber, meaning they just didn't have a store gathered gathered already of wood. So they volunteered their wood. And they donated to the to the communal need. And from that they would make, they would offer these these uh communal offerings. So that there were prophets among them who would say that, you know, in the future, this chamber is going to be full with wood and the, these families will continue to give from themselves, from their own pocket. Meaning that the, because, or I suppose, I think it's because, right, that they took the initiative and they gave the wood from their own property. So then the idea is that they would always be able to, that they would have the skut to contribute the, the offerings that would be brought using their stuff, their wood first. So this is a nice kind of, I would say, interchange between the needs of the tzibur, the requirements of, of the Beit HaMikdash, and frankly, the aliyah that happened as B'nai Israel came back from Babylonia, um, and settle down. And, you know, as I mentioned the other day, like I kind of think of everything just working as clockwork. There are carbonate and there's got to be wood on the Mizbeach because you have to burn the carbonate, And that's that. And at the end of the day, the question of how to actually provide all these things and fund them was, you know, quite real. Um, so. I, I love this story about these three families that sort of saw a need in terms of the wood and filled it. And then it becomes a personal holiday for them. Like, what is it that they're celebrating exactly? I, I, I think it's the idea that they took initiative about something and that was worthy of a celebration. Right. Yes. I mean, I think that the idea is that they they merited their names to be mentioned. You know, right. that they've that's volunteerism, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 a nice lesson of volunteerism here. Um, I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah here, which is also going to tell us what are some other items that were funded with the Shkalim. Para, right? So the para duma, that's the red heifer 
that transforms a person uh, when you sprinkle it with its ash water from tummy to tahor. If somebody became tummy by encountering or touching a dead body, the setir hamishtaleach or the he goat, which was sent to Azazel. So we know in Yom Kippur, there was that one goat that they sent out uh, to the desert. Basically, we'll learn more about that when we go to Masachat Yoma. So that actual goat was purchased with this money. The Lashon Shel Zehorit, and the stripe of red wool. So when the Paraduma is burned, you need to have um, their cedar wood and hyssop, and it was bound together with, with some red wool, and all of that was thrown into the fire. So that red wool. And finally, so all these things were purchased with uh, funds from the Trumat Halishka. Now the mission is going to go on to a, these are things that occasionally needed to be paid for. In other words, you still use the Shkalim, but they weren't necessarily paid for. They weren't necessarily a recurring or frequent occurrence. So the first one is the Keves Paras. So this was a ramp that was built specifically for the Paraduma. So if you look in the Mishnah uh, of Masachet Para, which in Paragimel Pasuk Bet, it describes that having to get the Paraduma to the place where it was burned was a whole procedure within itself. And basically the idea was to make sure that everybody who was involved with the Para itself would remain Tahor as much as they could. Well, the person who actually touched the ashes themselves, they became Tame. Um, but we wanted to really sort of protect the para aduma itself. So transporting it um, was, uh, was a whole process by itself. And one of the things that they wanted to do uh, was um, make this ramp. And the idea of the ramp was, is that while they were transporting the paraduma, they wanted to make sure the paraduma and the person transporting it didn't go over a kever to home. If you remember from Asachat Shabbat, we learned about that, right? The idea of sort of this deep tuma, right? It's, uh, that you find out later that something was buried somewhere after you walked over it. So that's why they, so this was one of the funds that they would use. The kefas sa'ir hamishtaleach and the ramp that was built to transport this uh, goat that was used for Azazel and Yom Kippur, the lashun shavin karnav and the strip of wool which was tied between the um, this he goat's horns, the amatamayim, and the water canal. So again, this was a water canal that basically went through the temple courtyard um, to give water for washing the courtyard. So again, if we remember Pesachim, um, and I'm sort of quoting all these gemaras because I know I spoke about this a couple of days ago. We should be starting to get used to. You, we've learned enough already that some of these things should really start to be familiar. So remember Pesachim, it described had there was basically sort of blood that was knee deep and they had this water channel and they had this whole procedure of how they would actually wash out all of the blood. And then finally, So also in Jerusalem itself, the city walls, the towers and all the city's needs. All of this was provided by the remainder of the treasury. And now they want to discuss a little bit about the ramp itself that was used for the Paraduma. This ramp that was used for the Paraduma, so he says that actually the Kohen Gadol would build this out of their own money. And the idea here is that, you know, they would, they were the ones who did the, the avoda around the Paraduma. And it was sort of a way for them to sort of make their mark on this Paraduma. Remember, the Paraduma was only, you only uh, 
perfected it and made this whole thing with the with the ash water when you needed it, when one ran out and then you needed it again. So this wasn't done so frequently. And so uh, according to Abishol, this money didn't come out of the leftover shkalim, but actually a Kohen Gadol would pay for this individually. Um, and then we're going to get to uh, some of the other things that were done with the surplus. Moter she'arei lishka, mahayu asim bahem. So what do they do with the surplus of shkalim? So they would buy wines, oils, and fine flowers, and then they would basically resell those things, and whatever profit was made from the sale, and the Gemara goes through pretty elaborately how this worked exactly, that would go back to the, temp- to the temple. That's what Rabbi Shmuel says. Rabbi Yekiva says you can't do any kind of commerce with these types of funds that are hegdesh. You weren't allowed to sort of buy, you know, other items from it and then sell it and then take the profit. And again, the Gemara will explain a little bit more in detail what Rabbi Akiva's opinion was about that. And we don't do this also, Rabbi Akiva says, with funds collected for the poor. So part of here, what they're discussing is, is, you know, could you take funds that were for poor people and invest it, let's say, and then take, you know, whatever is left over, the profit you made, and you sort of give it back to the poor itself. Um, and according to this Mishnah, this seems to be uh, problematic. And then finally, the Gemara is going to, the Mishnah, excuse me, is going to tell us other things they would do with the Motar. Motar, Chuma, Maha, Yosinba, right? What would they do with the Motar, with the surplus? So they would use it to buy the gold sheets that, that covered the Kaddish Kedoshim. Now, Rabbi Yishmael is going to disagree again and say uh, with, the, with the Tanakama, Rabbi Yishmael, Motar, Hapeirot, Kai, Tamizbeach. So he says the remainder that came from the fruits was used for, and I love this, this the dessert of the altar. So here what they're talking about is that let's say you just had sort of like a period of time where nothing was being put on the Mizbeach. And this kind of answered a question of what happened when you read about the description of the Avodah, right? So like a typical day is, you know, there's a Korban Tamid in the morning, Korban Tamid in the afternoon. Maybe somebody's coming to bring a Chatas. But presumably, there could have been a period of time where there was nothing on the Mizbeach itself. And therefore, they created this category, which, you know, in English translates to the dessert of the altar. But the idea is, is that this never should be, the, the altar should sort of never stand idly. And so therefore, they would just sort of bring communal Ola Korbanot, uh, and that's what they would buy with it, just to sort of fill the time so something was always burning on the Mizbeach itself. And also the surplus could be used to, to buy the service vessels. Another opinion here, Rabbi Akiva agrees that we can use the surplus for the dessert of the altar. Again, that's the translation. And the excess of Nisachim was used for the service festivals. So in other words, if you had leftover wine or flour, that was purchased, remember the Nisachim were sort of all the accoutrements that went with the Korban, then anything that was left over from that, for that money, that's what you would use for the Klei And again, the Gemara will get into a discussion a little bit. Do those things need to be prepared in a Klei in something that's Hegdesh, or do they not need to be? And finally, a fourth opinion, Rabbi Chanina Skana Kohanim Omer. So Rabbi Chanina Skana Kohanim, again, you should recognize his name, um, from uh, that famous Mishnah in Shabbat that started our initial discussion of Tumantara, Motar Nechasim Kates Hamizbeach. The excess of the Nechasim was used for this dessert of the altar. Motar Chumalachay Lekliya 
and the surplus was used for the service vessels. So there's four different opinions. There's the Tanakama, Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Hanania Skan Hakohanim. Zevizel lo hayu motim Neither this one or that one, Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Hanina, would uh, admit to Rabbi Shmuel concerning uh, concerning the fruit. So what they're really disagreeing about with Rabbi Shmuel here is this idea of these extra Ola offerings um, that, you know, where where is the money that it came from? So according to Rabbi Akiva, it comes from the Trumat Lishka. According to Rabbi Hananya, it comes from the excess of the Nesachim. Um, and again, we'll, the Gemara will go through exactly what exactly is the Machlokas that they have uh, with, um, with Rabbi Yishmael there. Again, I think what's interesting is the Gemara, the Mishnah is taking pains to really account for every single cent that is donated, right? There's no concept of, oh, there's a little leftover. We'll just do with it the Kohanim or, you know, the temple treasurer can just do with it whatever they want. Really, again, because this isn't a communal donation, and it's its own economy, it needs to be very transparent of what are you allowed to do with those communal funds and what can you not do with those communal funds. But I'll just make one final comment. Because we are, you know, a little bit farther removed from the actual going-ons of the Beit Dutch itself, we do see that the Tanayim have some achlokas about it, which I do find interesting. They're not so far removed from the destruction, and you would think this stuff would have been preserved well. But I think things do get lost and how things were actually done, you know, even if you're just a generation removed from when it was done, it can sometimes be difficult to remember. And I think we're seeing that played out a little bit here because I, I don't know, I sort of found like, why aren't we trusting the Skan Koanim opinion the most? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. He's sort of that fourth opinion is on equal, you know, playing field with the other Tanayim, but almost in a way to be like, no, the Skan Koan, he should know how it was used. But we treat Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmuel, and even the Tanakama's opinion um, all equally. And, and I found that to also be an interesting piece of this Mishnah. Okay, so I find all of this very interesting, um, both in terms of the accounting and also in terms of what the funds really went for and the fact that they take such great care. Not that it should surprise us, but, you know, it's, it's nice to have it laid out exactly as we would hope it would be. Um, I want to make a, totally an aside here. Um, which is as follows. There was an article at the beginning of this week. I think it was the beginning of this week. Maybe even it was the end of last week. No, I think it was Monday when Chutzlaretz was still in Yantif, and which is one of the reasons that it didn't make it onto the podcast until today. Um, there was an article because on an archaeological find of what it seems to be a Tyrian, T-Y-R-I-A-N, Shekel, um, namely from Tzur, I guess, right? And the belief is from the archaeologists that it um, was one of the shkalim that would have been used to pay for machatzit shekel. So, and, you know, as a common coin in the particular era, which is exactly the time that we're talking about. So I felt like, you know, a little bit it was blown away. We'll include the, we'll include the link to the article. It's a Times of Israel article. I'm sure actually you can find it in all of the archaeological uh, reports because that's what happens, right? They report a find and then everybody has it um, to, to discuss. But I found it so timely in our learning of, of literally what is the machatito shekel, whatever. What have the shkalim used for? And lo and behold, they found one, in the, you know, amongst the, uh, you know, I think actually a kid found it in one of the archaeological digs. Anyway, that's all. It's really an aside. I just found it to be, you know, it, you know, sometimes it feels like it's so far removed because it's ancient history. And on the other hand, lo and behold, there's the archaeology. 
I think each history comes to life. Well, that's our Daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page. Uh, tell us what you think about, you know, all of the above. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.